Well, hello, everybody. It is great to see you. Good to welcome you today to Pathway. Welcome those of you who are in the room. Welcome those of you who are not in the room but are watching from maybe your own living room or your own home or some other location. Welcome to you or our classic venue or our moon campus. A lot of different people, places that people are checking in, and we're glad that you are. Are you excited to get into God's Word today? Amen. All right. Awesome. I love that. And we're going to do that in just a second. First of all, I want to play a little game with you. It's a game that I'm sure that uh, you've played before. It's just called, or I at least call it, This or That. Right? This or That is just a little game where you're given two options and then you just shout out which one of them you feel best applies to you or which one you prefer, which one you like better. All right? So if I were to say to you Chipotle or Chick-fil-A, you'd say... Chick-fil-A, wow, that was overwhelming. I'm not surprised, though. It's Christian chicken, and so it's probably, you know, something that we might expect. All right, thank you for that. Well, let's try some others, all right? Uh, just shout out the one that uh, you, would, you would opt for. How about Sudoku or Wordle? Wordle, Wordle. okay, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, common across the congregation. Zoom or in person? In person. Okay, how about Heinz or Hunts? Heinz. Duh, right? Absolutely. We all knew that one. How about for a soft drink, soda or pop? Okay, we have, uh, we have two pop outliers, and they're angry about it, too. I could tell by the way that, by the way that they spoke that up. Dog or cat? <laughs> all right. No, no, no fights. All right. How about what's allowed in the bathroom, phone or no phone? Okay. Remind me not to borrow some of your phones is all I got to say there. Toilet paper, over or under? Okay, most of you had it right, over. Uh, ESPN or Hallmark? <laughs> Darlington or Wampum? Yeah, all right, all right. Pastor John, or, uh, let's not do that one. Um, one more. Country music or good music? Good music? All right. Yeah, all right. Well, there you go. That, that's how you play this or that, right? And the answer to most of those really isn't all that big of a deal, unless, of course, it was the dog or cat one. Then there's a right answer. But, uh, but for the most part, the choice between this or that doesn't have all that much consequence to it in those different ones that we just brought up. But there are some this or that questions that are actually quite significant, where the answer that we would give has tremendous implications. And we're going to see that as we actually get into the text of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today, because today we're going to be thinking about and looking at this or that when it comes to the essentials of faith. And that's what we're calling this message, this or that, the essentials of faith faith. And there are some distinctions. And what we are finding that our author, the Apostle Paul, is telling us is that there are people who are trying to find their way toward faith or live out their faith in this way or that way. And they're very distinct. And the conclusion that is come to is, is absolutely essential to understand. And there is very much one right choice and one wrong choice. And all of the chapter that we're going to look at today is Paul trying to help us understand which one's right and which one is wrong. This is what we have come to. The Apostle Paul has been giving us this letter 
excuse me, to the Romans, to the church there in Rome, and we've come to chapter 4. So grab your scripture journal or your Bible and your notes, where, however you're going to process your way through this. Turn to Romans chapter 4, and uh, that's page 20 in your scripture journal. I hope that you're still using those. I see so many of them week to week, and that just encourages me greatly, and I appreciate you doing that. There are three essentials of faith that take center stage in this text, together with their imposters. And in each case, what I want to do, I just want to lay out there for you what Paul says the this or the that is and where he draws his conclusion. And then we're going to just back up or we're going to look at the text related to that and uh, see how he supports the conclusions that he comes to. And the first this or that essential is it, of faith is found in belief, he says, not works. Belief not works. We're just going to get right into this, all right? Now, right at the outset of chapter 4, Paul gives us a link back to what he has just said back in chapter 3. And you can see it in the way he starts. Verse 1 begins, What then shall we say? Which suggests that something already has been said, and what was said is what we just saw in chapter 3. And the main point he was driving home there is that salvation is not something that comes according to the law. Many people are seeking to live out the law. This is the Mosaic law that was given through Moses to the people of Israel and they hung their hat on this law and how they might find favor with God by living out in obedience the things that God had told them this is what I want you to do and so that's the the route that they went down but Paul says it can't happen that way what he says going on verse 1 and with that in mind what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. In other words, according to human effort. According to how well he could live up to that law that had been given. Now, he brings up Abraham just kind of out of the blue. And I'm kind of like, well, well, why? It sounds a little bit out of left field. Why is he drawing in Abraham here at this point in his argument? Well, it's actually to advance his argument. He's being very intentional. And it's because Abraham was the father of the whole Israelite nation or the whole Jewish nation. And much of the church in Rome was made up of those who were Israelites. They were Jewish. And he is writing to them because they're the ones who want to embrace the law. They want to embrace the things that they could accomplish on themselves, the works that they could do to gain God's favor. And so he is writing directly to them to try to help them to understand. But Abraham is the one that God came and established a covenant with and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, the Israelite people. And he said, I am going to set you up in a new place. And essentially, the Old Testament is tracing the creation and the movement of the people of Israel. Most all of the Old Testament is doing that very thing. So here you have Abraham, and all of these Jewish folks would have looked on him as the father of this nation with tremendous respect. They would have had awe for him. They would have celebrated him. They would have lifted him up at every occasion they had because he was their original forefather. He was the father of their nation. They highly respected him, and so Paul essentially puts Abraham on the stand to give his testimony of how he came to faith so that it might get the attention of those that he is trying to make a point with. And we'll see that point as we make our way along. Paul gets right into it, verse 2, where he writes, For if Abraham was justified by works, by the law, by the good things that he had done, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
Because how can you boast before God about who you are when God's the one who made you, right? Kind of you have the status there for sure. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham has nothing to boast about when it comes to the essential of faith because what was done wasn't something he did for himself. It's what God had done for him and that's what Paul is pointing out. Now, there's a very important Greek word here that it's worth going into. We don't spend a lot of time in the Greek and getting into the weeds on Greek tenses and that sort of thing. But this is a very important word, especially here in this chapter, because not only do we see it here, it's going to come up another ten times just in this chapter, and it's the Greek word legizomai. Legizomai, and it is translated as counted as or credited as. And it means that there's some sort of status that is conferred upon the person apart from anything that they have earned on their own. They didn't do that which was necessary to earn it. It was simply bestowed on them. They were counted as something, in this case righteous, because of what something else was that had been done on their behalf. I kind of think of this sort of like an honorary doctorate. A person who is given an honorary doctorate hasn't worked their way through all of the classwork of a doctoral program and then have it conferred on them because they did the work to earn what they received. It's just given to them for some other reason. For instance, Jimmy Kimmel and P. Diddy were both given honorary doctorates from the colleges that they dropped out of. But yet they were given a doctorate there at that school. It's not that they earned it. It was just conferred upon them. Kanye West was given an honorary doctorate shortly after winning the Grammy for his album, somewhat ironically titled, College Dropout. He was given an honorary doctorate. Or Conan O'Brien received an honorary doctorate from Dartmouth, and he joked with the students there in his commencement address that life is not fair, pointing to the fact that they had just worked hard to get their doctorate through all the classwork and all the test work and all the rest, and here he was. He just showed up and gave a speech, and they gave him a doctorate. He said, life is not fair. It is something that is conferred on a person, not because of the work that they have done, but perhaps for some other reason. In the case of these celebrities, they were honored not because they earned the degree, but because they had done something else, maybe in the arts or maybe in entertainment, or maybe simply because they gave that commencement speech and it was conferred upon them, this honor, not because they earned it, but rather just because it was given for some other reason. And that's the circumstance that Abraham is in here. He hadn't earned his status of being righteous, but it was stowed upon him for another reason. What's that reason? Because of his faith. Because of his faith, because of his belief, not his works, his belief, he is declared to be righteous. It is counted as, legizomai, counted as righteousness in his case. Now, where's that faith come from? Or what is the faith that he is holding to? This is essential to Paul's argument. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to Abraham, and we're introduced to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it was that God was going to make him into this great nation. He would make him the father of all of these people. And the number of descendants he would have would be greater than all of the sand on the seashore, all of the stars in the sky. He was going to be the guy. He was going to be tremendously blessed in that way, and all the rest of the nation would be blessed through him because they would come into that inheritance for themselves. And so what God calls him to do is pick up everything that he has and leave his homeland and go to a place he'd never been before, far from his home, and give him a brand new home with uh, this uh, and make him the father of this nation. And it says, 
says that Abraham believed. Abraham had the faith of what God was calling him to do, that God was going to follow through on his end of the bargain. And Abraham believed and he went. However, this great father of the nation didn't have any kids. He didn't have any offspring. And so there's these doubts that start to creep into his mind because time goes on and more and more years pass and he still isn't a father. And so how can he be the father of a great nation? And so, so God appears to him again and, and again gives him this promise. And this is a few chapters later. He reinstates the promise. And in chapter 15 now, he originally in chapter 12 comes the covenant. And now we're in, we're in chapter 15. And in verse 6, the text says this. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it, legizomai in the New Testament, but this is the Old Testament, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is his demonstration of faith in trusting and believing in what God is doing in him and through him. And then Paul quotes from that passage, Genesis 15, right here in our passage in Romans 4. Now, Abraham, Abram's life, Abraham, Abram was his name before it was changed, and at this point in time, it's still Abram, but his life was anything but perfect, and there would be all kinds of times that he would fail, but that essentially didn't matter when it came to his salvation because it wasn't based on his works. It wasn't based on the things that he had done. Rather, it was based on belief. This is a dividing line, and Paul is saying it's this, not that, and we need to be sure which one it is that we're resting in, and we need to be just as sure because we can be ones who fall into the same trap that those ancient Israelites fell into as well, and that is resting in our own efforts, resting in what we have done in our goodness and the way that we compare to other people instead of resting solely in a faith that we would have in God and what He has done. More about this as we make our way through this. Now that means that God saw him and treated him as blessed in that moment and in the future as one who was righteous. He doesn't look on him and say, man, you're really tainted with sin and I'm just going to be gracious on you. He looks on Abraham and he says, righteous. He sees him walking around as a righteous person. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. He didn't earn it, but it was counted to him as a gift. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 4. Look at it. It says, now to the one who works... His wages are not counted, there's our word, as a gift, but as his due. He's just saying, if you work, you're going to earn a wage. It's one-to-one. You're giving it. You earned it. It should be yours. He says that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what Abraham experienced. He experiences something that he didn't earn, that he didn't work for. He goes on, verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, our word, as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, our word again, righteousness apart from works. So here he goes. He's already got Abraham. He draws him in as a, test, or as a witness. Now he's drawing in David. Why David? Well, same reason as Abraham. David was very highly respected among the Israelites. David was their greatest king. He expanded their borders. He helped to bring peace into the land. He certainly wasn't perfect. We know that about David. But Paul says that David also experienced the same blessing that doesn't come from the law. It comes from faith. And so this is another testimony to the people, the Israelites, the Jews in Paul's day who were resting in their own faith to say, here are your two greatest leaders that you look to that you so highly respect. What you're resting in, that's not what they were resting in. He's trying to get their attention and trying to wake them up to the circumstance that they were 
in. And so he's using both of these. And then in verse 7 and 8, Paul quotes from David's words in Psalm 32, a lot of quoting from the Psalms here. It says, Blessed are those, this is David writing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice David does not say, blessed is the one who doesn't sin. He doesn't say, blessed is the one who keeps the law. He says, blessed is the one who when he sins, his sins are covered. Blessed is the one, because everybody sins, blessed is that one because he will be and can be forgiven. That's good news for all of us because it means that in the midst of our sin, it's not too late. It means there's hope. It means for all of us, there is hope because we are all in our sin. And that hope is born out of belief, not works. Do you feel like he's trying to make a point? For a couple of chapters now, at least, he keeps driving this point home. And you've heard it before. If you were with us last week, it's like, is this last week's sermon or is this week's sermon? No, this is this week's sermon. And Paul is just trying to drive it home again, this time through Abraham and through David, putting them on the stand. And a great way for us to see if we're trusting in works and and not belief in Jesus is to ask yourself, what happens when you sin? What happens when you fail to obey? If when you sin, if when you fail to obey, you have a little bit of uh, a little bit of a crisis of assurance, where it's like, uh, I'm not sure, where you start to question the depth of your faith, or you start to question whether or not you have assurance of, of heaven in your future. If you're asking those questions when you sin and when you fail to obey and when you're wandering away for a while, then chances are very, very good that you're resting as the ancient Israelites were, in the things that they have done. You're resting in the things that you have done, and that's why when you fail to do them, because they were the key, that all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm not just so sure anymore. So if you go through those swings of, I I, I feel sure, but now I don't feel so sure, and and I'm wondering about my, my level of acceptance before God, and those sorts of things, then it's quite possibly an indication that there is something going on that needs to be ultimately settled. I told you a few weeks ago about a church that I grew up in that our, my parents took us to. It was this old church and had this beautiful balcony and, and these bell towers and all the rest. Well, at that church, my dad was actually the choir director, and my mom sang in the choir. And so most church services, I wasn't sitting with them. I was sitting up in the balcony with my friends and not always behaving. But uh, it was interesting to me that my mother, from down in the choir loft, even it seemed when she was singing the anthem and Dad was directing, as she was singing, that she would be singing about the love and the grace of God while at the same time her eyes were focused up on me declaring that the wrath of God is to come on you. I didn't understand how she could do that, but it was also while sitting up there in that balcony that I prayed to receive Jesus over and over and over again, time and time again. Why? Because in my heart, I didn't recognize it then, but I recognize now that in my heart, what my trust was placed in were in the things that I was doing. I was placing it in works and uh, the good things that I might carry out. And so whenever I failed in that, which inevitably I would do, I felt I needed to confess those sins and, and find God's forgiveness again, yes, which we all do, but also to pray to receive Jesus because my thought was apparently that God exited every time that I, well, what was I doing? I was trusting in works. 
Not belief. I was trusting in works, and it could very well be that that's a circumstance that you find yourself in. Ask yourself, what happens to your level of assurance when you fall into sin and when you walk away from God? can be very telling, to be sure. See, if faith equals obedience, then what your faith is in is you. If faith equals obedience, your faith is in you, not in God. It's important to understand. That will lead us to self-assurance, and then it'll lead us to a lack of assurance. Then we'll do better, and it'll lead us to self-assurance, and then we'll do worse, and it'll lead us to lack of assurance. Well, what's absent? God's absent from the whole process, but it just swings back and forth and back and forth, and that's where some of us live and have lived for years. But Paul says the essence of faith is belief, not works, and what that'll lead us to is humility, recognizing I can't do this on my own, and then confidence, that even in the midst of the things that I do that are apart from what God is calling me to, I can still have the confidence that I am in Christ, that I am in God, because it wasn't resting in me in the first place. I've humbled myself to acknowledge I can't do it, but you can, and I'm resting in you, so now I'm always confident. And what's happened? What is your level of confidence? And you're standing before God. It's absolutely important we would ask ourselves this question. And about that saving faith, it's not just believing that there's a God who's out there. That's not what this is talking about. Your status with God isn't secure just because you believe that somewhere there's a God. That's not what it's about. That's having faith in your faith, essentially, that that's going to get you there. Saving faith is transferring your trust from anything at all you can do on your own, leaving you solely and completely under the work of God. Completely resting in what He has done for you. Not doing these things so that I might feel better. Not doing these things so that I might get God's favor for salvation. But simply resting completely on what He has done for us. It's belief, not works. And if we reverse them, we're going to leave ourselves in a place of a lack of assurance, and we're going to leave ourselves ultimately separated from the grace of God. He says belief, not works. That's the this or that when it comes to the essentials of faith that he starts with. And the second one is very much like it. The this or that that he comes to next is grace, not law. This is the this or that. Grace or law? Well, it's grace, he says, not law. To draw this essential of faith to draw it out, Paul turns his attention to the issue of circumcision. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, or if this is like the first time you've ever come to church and we're talking about circumcision, you might wonder, what did I walk into? Because it's going to sound kind of weird to you as he makes his way through this. Well, what you need to understand, what we all need to understand, is that circumcision was simply an outward sign for the people of Israel that they took to identify the fact that they belonged to that nation. And it was something that every Israelite male would do to live up in keeping to the law. And it was just a, a, just a sign. And it was very important to them that they would follow through appropriately on this because they saw it essentially as a free pass to favor with God. And they were resting in that too much, as we'll see as he makes his way along. Paul says, no, no, no. Circumcision was an aspect of the law. He says it's grace, not law. 
Uh, Paul knows that there's a key element here that's going to make all the difference when understanding this part of the law. And so pay attention as he goes on here in verse 9. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? They were the Jews, the ones who lived by the law. Or also for the uncircumcised, everybody else, the Gentiles. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. What did he say? That faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then? Was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? This is very important, the answer to this question. He says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The celebration of Abram's faith here that was counted to him as righteousness comes in Genesis chapter 15. The law hasn't even brought forward circumcision yet at all. And so it couldn't be as all of the others are resting in that outward sign for their favor with God when it wasn't even present when Abraham puts his faith and his trust in God. This was so transformational for the Jews to take and to understand this reality. Verse 11 continues, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, non-Jews too, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, just a few more of these here, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. Paul says that if Abram was saved apart from the law, and we already know that he was, that others will also be saved in the same way, by grace, not law. Driving this point home yet another time. Paul goes on then, the next few verses, to reiterate essentially what he's just said to make sure everybody gets it, like, He hasn't said it enough, but he's going to make sure we understand because it's that vital. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's just saying that the law, really all that that does for you is show you how hopeless things are if you're resting in that or you're trusting in that for the fulfillment that you want to experience of favor with God. He says it just can't get it done. And instead, all the law does is point out how how miserable of a sinner that you really are and how you deserve the wrath of God. That's what the law points out. He says it cannot save, but thankfully there is something else that can. God made a different way, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's saying that those who are trusting in the law are actually out of step with their forefather. They're out of step with Abraham, not in step, which would have been a big blow to them and their presuppositions because they were resting in their, the law, but they were also wanting to be just like their forefather. Paul says they're two different things, and you're going to have to make a choice. And so he uses Abraham, and that's why he gives this whole chapter over to trying to help them to understand that that which you are resting in cannot 
accomplish for you what you're resting in it to do. Vitally important, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul nails it down that this salvation rests on grace, not law, and he goes so far as to say it's guaranteed How would you like your faith to be guaranteed? How would you like your sense of of your ultimate salvation to be guaranteed? Well, it can be, just like it is here. And the key is that it's not in resting on yourself, but resting on God's grace. Grace, not law. Paul says, I want to give you this or that. There are decisions that we're going to have to make, that you're going to have to make. He says, related to the essentials of faith. And he starts and he says, It's belief, not works. It's grace, not law. And there's one more he gives here. He says that it's promise, not presumption. Promise, not presumption. Sometimes when it comes to our spiritual lives, we have a tendency to think that uh, we're probably not going to experience the, the best in all of the circumstances that would come our way. That's because we can become pessimistic. You know what a pessimist is, right? That's the guy who goes to the restaurant to meet up with his date and says, table for one, please. Right? Yeah, that, that's the pessimist. Well, guess what? There are pessimists, spiritually speaking, as well. But Paul is saying that Abraham was defeating that sort of mindset. Verse 18, in hope, not pessimism, in hope he believed against hope. Instead of presuming that things are not going to work out, he leans into God's promise. But there's a very important question that we need to ask, and it's this. In what promises is Abraham placing his hope? And I'm going to give you three. Three very important ones. We're going to make our way through these, and they're so important because it's not just something he says is a blessing for the ancient Jews. These are blessings for us. These are things that we can count on God. These are promises he gives to us as well. These are things that we can take and hopefully would encourage us as we move from this place. Let's take a look at what these are. The first is that God will come through regardless of how circumstances appear. God will come through regardless of how circumstances appear. Verse 18 goes on. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be, which is another quote from Genesis 15. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. (laughs) Yeah, he's getting old, but that, that still sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? That he's as good as dead because he's getting... Maybe I'm just sensitive because I had a birthday last week. I don't know. He goes on, since he was about 100 years old, not quite that old yet, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Circumstances will certainly appear as though God's promise is going to fail if you're watching for a baby and you're 99 and your wife is 89. But Abraham, he's painting the nursery because he's got faith and trust in God that he's going to do what he has said that he is going to do, that he'll come through. See, there may be some things that are going on in your life, things that might seem like they're a long shot for you also, and you might be becoming despondent. Well, is it worse than thinking you're 99 and you're going to have a baby, or your wife's 89 and she's going to have a baby? Is it really a, a greater long shot than, than that? 
we can come to experience and will come to experience the blessing of God because God's promises ring true and come through. Promises that God, that He, that, uh, he will cause all things to work together for good or that the one who began a good work in us is going to carry it on to completion. These are promises that come from God that we can put our hope and our rest in. And whatever it is, the circumstance is for you that seems to be so difficult, regardless of how that circumstance happens, just as we see it here with Abraham and with the nation of Israel. So God's promise will come through for you as well. You can take confidence in that very thing, and I hope that you do. The question is, what do you need to trust God for today? What's that circumstance going on in your life? where you're about to throw in the towel, where things just seem too difficult, where you've been praying about it, or maybe you haven't been praying, but you've been wishing about it, wondering when it's going to change. Rest in the promise of God. Pray His promises back to Him and wait and watch for God to do what God loves to do. That's one of the promises that is given here. Another promise that we find here through Abraham is that God will be faithful despite our failures. Oh, I love this one. Verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham definitely was not perfect. There are a number of times that he fell short of the things that God had called him to do, the places that he had sent him to go. Several times that happened in his life, but Abraham knew that his hope wasn't found in his faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of God. Your hope isn't just found in your faithfulness. You're going to fall short. You are going to have failures. There's no doubt about that, but God's going to be faithful. If you ever find yourself apart from God, wandering away from Him, I can tell you this, God didn't go anywhere. You did. And the moment that we choose to turn around and walk back in God's direction, what we'll discover is He is right there. He is waiting to welcome us back in. If you're feeling out of step with God right now, the truth is that you can be in step with God five seconds from now, if that's the choice that you want to make. You say, no, 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 I've messed up so often. God wouldn't be interested in me. No, 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 to you, God will be faithful despite our failures. There's nothing that he loves more than drawing you in, than forgiving you of the things that you have done, and there is nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven. That is good news. It's a promise that comes from God, and then there is one more here that he highlights, and it's this, that God will always be true to his word. God will always be true to his word. Paul says, Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God had called Abraham to do some pretty amazing things, picking up and leaving your whole extended family to go off to Saskatchewan or somewhere that you've never been before is a pretty amazing thing. And understand this, Abraham was not 20-something when this call came from God. He was probably about 60 when he first received the call. 
which means that he was already walking around the mall before it was open. (laughs) He was already printing out his GPS directions. He was still writing checks. He was walking around with a pocket full of change and all of his keys on the same ring, right? He's not a spring chicken. All of the other people, all the other seniors at the senior center were slowing down, but not Abraham because of his absolute faith that God would be true to his word. And he went after it, and it led him to the most significant years of his life. And it'll do the same thing for us. Sometimes we think it's in pursuing my own interests and going after my own desires and living out my own dreams or pursuing my own things, even if they're harmful, even if they're detrimental, whatever. It's going after what I desire that is going to lead me to satisfaction and, and meaning and purpose, and we're just dead wrong. It's not found in pursuing our own things. It's found in pursuing the call of God. That's what Abraham did, and it led him, despite how difficult and challenging it was, to the most significant years of his life. And it'll do the same thing for you. But sometimes we think, no, following after the call of God, that's, that's going to be too hard. It's going to be too big. It's going to require too much of me. Last week we talked about because of all that God has done for us, because he went over the top for us, that we would respond by going over the top for him. Understanding that it's the height of dismissing God and lack of gratitude to look on all that Jesus endured, that he took the wrath of God on himself that we deserved so that we could go live a casual life? Does that compute to you? I don't think so. Abraham is a perfect example of another who goes over the top. And could it be that as we stack up Paul and we stack up Abraham and we stack up David, not perfect people, but as we stack up more and more and more people who we look at and Paul says, look at those lives, look at how they're serving, is it just some sort of coincidence that they're all all in with God? Is that why they're finding the greatest fulfillment despite their weaknesses? Is it like, well, God's going to do it differently for me. He's going to let me just live out my own interests. And then he's still going to bless me with the greatest years I've ever had and and the fullness of of all the joy I could ever possibly imagine and the greatest purpose is going to be that you're going to be the exception who finds that apart from choosing to give yourself over as a servant to Christ. I don't think so. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, and again, God saw him whenever he looked on Abraham as righteous. Just think of that. To have God look on you as righteous. First thing he thinks when he sees you, righteous. Because you've placed your faith in Christ, and you have his righteousness applied to your life. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In case there's any doubt, 
Paul's drawing a direct application here. He's doing our application work for us, which is great. I appreciate that. Saying that your faith in the risen Jesus will be counted as righteousness and the full blessing of God will be yours as you lean into that faith. So what are the essentials of faith? What are the this or that's that Paul brings to our attention? What are the essentials of faith? Belief, not works. Grace, not law. Promise, not presumption that we can do it ourselves or that we've got the world by the tail or we can do what we will. It's resting fully and completely in who Jesus is and in what he has done that will lead us to the place that we are declared righteous, justified, redeemed. I know that I assume that that is what you would want to have true of your life. So ask yourself that question. Where is your trust fully placed? Not partly, not I'm kind of half in Jesus and cross and half in do my own thing. But where are you? If you're walking after Christ in the fullness of resting on what he has done for you, not anything that you're seeking to accomplish for yourself. You can walk with that confidence, with that assurance, having humbled yourself before God. God, there's nothing I can do on my own. It's all about you. I put my faith in you alone. That is what leads us to the place where we experience his greatest blessing, the justification that only comes from him. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for just the clarity that Paul is giving us week after week on what this means. And it's not something he hasn't said before, but he, he comes at it from a different angle, saying it doesn't matter who it is you rest in. It doesn't matter who it is that you respect. It doesn't matter what life you look at and you say, wow, that's something to emulate. He says none of that gets it done. He says, the only thing that gets it done is faith in Jesus, putting our hope and our trust in him. So Lord, today we come to humble ourselves, to acknowledge that there is nothing that we can do. And Lord, I'm sure that there are some listening right now, whether in the room or in another room or online or wherever listening in, who's wondering, who was me in the balcony praying again and again because every time we fall away, our assurance goes with it. And Lord, for those, just pray that you would break through to our hearts and if you are that one, that you would just pray, God, I am that sinner. I've tried to do it my own way can't do it. It's all about you. I'm putting my trust in you. It's that simple. That's what, that's what gets us done. That's what takes the step of humbling yourself before God and acknowledging you can't do it, and that's the thing that can bring you the confidence. Father, thank you so much for your grace. 
that we don't have to live according to a bunch of rules and regulations, that we don't have to bring lambs and rams to sacrifice so that we might try to get back into your good graces, but that you've extended your grace through your Son. Lord, if there are any here who are wrestling with whether or not that is a reality for them, I just pray that you not let them walk out the doors without having settled this issue, without, without speaking up and saying, I need to talk. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can rest in confidence that you've done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you for your love and your grace and, the, and your mercy that extends us to us. And we take it and we claim it through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen.